Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. I've known today's guest for a number of years. I first read one of her books before I ever met her, and I was like, this lady can totally write. Like, she's really good, and she has a vocabulary that's way above mine. And so, um, <laughs> and so it was called Hava, and it was the story of Eve, and I think it was one of her first um, books. And so Tosca Lee is the award-winning New York Times best-selling author of The Line Between and The Progeny, Firstborn, Iscariot, The Legend of Sheba, Demon, A Memoir, and more. She's written the Books of Mortal series with the New York Times bestseller Ted Decker. Um, a Single Light is Tosca's highly anticipated sequel to the award-winning The Line Between, and A Single Light comes out September 17th from Simon & Schuster. As she likes to say, she is a notorious night owl who loves watching TV, eating bacon, playing video games with her kids, and sending cheesy texts to her husband. You can find Tuska hanging around the snack table or wherever bacon is served. So, Tuska, it's great to have you on uh, on the show today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's... um. I don't normally read a book and say this person is is an amazing, you know, writer. And like I mentioned as we were getting started here, um, that was the case with you. And I was like, who is who is Tuscalia? Like I've never heard of her, or met her before. And now oh. Hava, I don't know that that was your first book. Maybe Demon, a memoir, might have been. I can't really remember the yeah. whole. Yeah. Yep. Demon was the first one, and it was a kind of very different style than Hava. So Demon was more of a supernatural suspense. And then Hava is the story of Eve, and it was written in a more literary style, kind of a more language-forward kind of poetic style, and it was um, just a completely different voice. So... Um, That's one of the things I actually do want to mint or uh, actually chat about for a second is that sure. all of your stories do have this amazing imaginative take and this unique voice, um, mm-hmm. which which you just mentioned. And I know I've read Iscariot, which is the story of Judas, um, mm-hmm. Iscariot from the Bible, and um, I'm just curious, how do you do, do that where you kind of step into these different characters um, with the fantasy, with suspense, with even biblical narratives from different perspectives, mm-hmm. and 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 create a voice that feels natural to that story. Well, you know, I um, back in my geek days, <laughs> I was an online gamer, and I did a lot of role playing. And what that really came down to is a lot of writing, actually. And this is before I was published. And there was a, a group of um, online role-playing gamers, and we did a lot of writing from the viewpoint of our characters. Interesting. And we we put hours and hours and hours and years into this. And I I always say that this is the most kind of unconventional training for writing characters <laughs> that you could probably have. But 
I want to say sometimes that everything I learned about characterization, I learned from doing that, um, which seemed like a phenomenal waste of time at the time. (laughs) Um, But I feel like it really shaped uh, how I approach writing characters. And I do a lot of um, first person. And I think that was also a direct result of that time in my life as well. So uh, I think it came out of my geek days, honestly. No, that's that's really interesting. You know, I've, I don't know that I've ever spoken with someone who said, you know, online gaming and kind of creating characters in that way was, yeah. you know, a great training ground for characterization mm-hmm. in the writing that they do. But but um, that that makes sense. And like I said, your stories are real imaginative and very, mm. um, I guess, different in the sense that. There's a lot of cookie-cutter stories out there and even biblical narratives that are kind of like the same, but you decided to tackle a little bit different takes on things, um, like mm-hmm. Iscariot, writing a story from mm-hmm. Judas's perspective. Now, I know we've chatted about this before at a conference or something, and I think you mentioned that you, know, you spent years actually researching this mm-hmm. story before you even you know, finished or, or uh, worked, worked your way through the book. Yeah, I did. I It was at least a year and a half of research, and that included going to Israel. That included compiling a, a massive library of resources that included everything from books, of course, to transcripts to uh, commentaries and, and all kinds of things. I had over 100 items. I had to put another shelf in my office to hold all that stuff. that's <laughs> And, you know, I, I do have OCD, so I'm a little obsessive about this stuff, but also, you know, I fully recognize the fact that there are people who devote their lives to studying, you know, first century history, uh, Middle Eastern history. And so I really just did not want to get it wrong. I wanted to do the time period justice and I wanted to uh, shine a light on the political situation and all the things that influenced the life and times of the ministry of Jesus Christ, which is what this book centers around, especially through the eyes of the infamous disciple Judas Iscariot. And so that meant doing a lot of of work, and it felt a lot to me like I was back in school uh, (laughs) trying to do a dissertation or something like that. So it was quite a lengthy process, and, you know, it took me, I'd say, about six months or more to write that first draft. The first draft was over 800 pages, so I really overwrote it. Yeah, it was 200 and some thousand words. It was a behemoth, and I had to cut that baby down, and it was um, such a process and such a journey, but um, it was well, well worth it in the end, and I, you know, like every manuscript that we struggle with, uh, I learned so much um, in the process of writing that one particular book. And I remember reading it, and I was really impressed with that story, and um, again, it had a unique voice, and it was almost, it wasn't so literary, but it was almost um, conversationally poetic, I would say, in the sense that it wasn't like super long sentences and stuff like that, but sometimes little mm-hmm. sentence fragments and um, and just developing this this really immersive kind of resonant resonant story. And one of the things that I was mm-hmm. curious about was what was it like for you to climb into the mindset of one of the most infamous people yeah. who's ever lived? <laughs> That's you know, so interesting. <laughs> Yeah, at the beginning, it was like, okay, I am a first-century Jewish guy, you know, yeah. and I'm telling myself this, and I'm like, okay. And my whole deal was that, 
Judas Iscariot had to be representative of the first century Jewish everyman. That was my Mm. deal, Uh because this was how I would set the stage for what the expectations were for someone like, um, you know, Jesus Christ coming on the scene, where the expectations of a Messiah were entirely political. They weren't Mm. spiritual at all. And so... You know, what does it mean to be looking for a Messiah? What is what are the expectations and what are the burdens that every that every man Jewish guy is carrying around as far as trying to keep the law to bring about national freedom and all this stuff? And, um, you know, in Judas, I, I had found a guy who was, you know, trying to do his best, trying to keep the law, trying to do all the good stuff you're supposed to do. But a really weird thing, an amazing uh, transformation happened about halfway through the book where I realized I was no longer writing Judas Iscariot's story. I was writing my story. Mm. And this was my story of the expectations that I had for God and the agendas that I had for God and the way that I thought things should come about and the way that I tried to control events by my behavior um, and my expectations. And so... It was. It really became more of a personal journey um, through through that process. As I realized, this is really my story. Huh. That's so. really interesting, and and um, and that one again is told in first person, uh, as far as mm-hmm. I remember. And yeah. Um, yeah, and and so that just that identification with with the character you're writing about with his time, with his life, with his expectations and your story, I think all of that really probably comes together to create, you know, something that um, that's really powerful, powerful in the end. Um, so you have done some of these biblical ones, like we mentioned, mm-hmm. um, but you've also mm-hmm. done these fant- kind of fantasy stories, um, also mm-hmm. writing with um, Ted Decker and, um, mm-hmm. you know, the progeny and the firstborn and some of these um, these newer books that you've done, The Line Between, mm-hmm. which I understand just won another award. And um, mm-hmm. so congratulations on the Killer Nashville Award that you picked up for for that book. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, I kind of um, shifted after writing the story of Judas Iscariot. I, I did a novel about the Queen of Sheba, which I thought, oh, this will be so much easier research-wise because, you know, I've got all this background. But no, it wasn't because she lived like a thousand years before the time of Christ and you have to re-research everything and there's so much less to go on. And so, um, you know, you kind of start over from scratch again. But after that, it was like, you know, I want to do some, I want to do some modern stories. And so I wrote a a book called The Progeny and it's, um, it's about the modern day descendants of a real life historical figure, Elizabeth Bathroy, who was known as the blood countess. And she was this Hungarian countess who was um, who purportedly bathed in the blood of virgins to stay young and beautiful and all this stuff. Uh, I don't think that's really the case. That's Hollywood. But uh, I did go all over Hungary and Croatia and Eastern Europe and research this. And so I wrote this uh, thriller about her modern day descendants and the sequels called Firstborn. And then after that, decided uh, I really love writing this kind of fast paced stuff, you know, have kind of left that more lyrical, literary-type voice behind for mm-hmm. now. Yeah. And went into The Line Between, which is a pandemic thriller, so... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You were you were a prophet, and you didn't, um, uh, you didn't quite know it. Yeah. Yeah, so. that was 
that came out last year and the sequel came out last year and it was it's been really weird kind of watching things unfold this year um you know, not that it happened exactly the same, but, you know, there was like a Washington, it started in Washington state in the novel. And then there's all these edicts to stay home and stay safe and people, mm. you know, using hand sanitizer and wearing gloves and stuff. And it's like, Oh, so. That's, yeah, yeah that's really interesting. I mean, um, <laughs> that you wrote it when you, you know, when you did, I hope you don't feel responsible for for anything because that's not. All I know is I I feel like I should write a book about an author who wins the lottery next. <laughs> so, <There you> go. <laughs> <laughs> just to hedge my bets. Yeah. <laughs> now you mentioned a little bit of how you got started, you know, through the online gaming and so on. What was it that led you to move? from that uh, feel in that direction toward writing um, mm-hmm. your first story, Demon, um, a memoir. By the way, um, is it mm-hmm. from the person? I haven't read that one, so is it from the perspective of a demon? Um, that one is written from the perspective of a Boston editor named Clay who has uh, these repeated encounters with this fallen angel who wants to tell him his story and he wants Clay to write it down and publish it. Ah, and so it's kind of like Interview with a Vampire, but with a demon. It's kind of an easy way to yeah. sum that one up. It is in first person, but from Clay's point of view. Um, it is another one of the novels I've done where I've kind of taken a, a maligned point of view and kind of you know told that story um, you know, a fallen angel and Eve and Judas Iscariot. So it's kind of another one of those maligned uh, points of view. Yeah, that's um, fascinating. Yeah, that but, one yeah. came out of, I, I was still gaming actually, and I was looking for a new character and I was thinking, oh, maybe it'd be fun to do like an angelic character. And then I thought, oh, that's kind of boring. Uh, what about a fallen angel? And then I started thinking, you know, what would my life be about? You know, what would be my motivation in life? Am I trying to tempt people to do bad things or to steal or smoke or, you know, just for fun? Or does it go much deeper than that? And, you know, drawing from my my spiritual background growing up, um, that's where I, I turned to some of my, my scriptural background to to say, like, what would be my motivation if, if this is who I am? And so that's how that story came about. Um, it was not my very first novel I've ever written. I wrote my very, very first novel in 1989. Actually. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and it was about this, the Neolithic Stonehenge people of um, Salisbury Plain, England, and it was a, you know, a historical novel. It wasn't good. Uh, I, it was not good. I submitted it to Writer's House in uh-huh. 1990, trying to get an agent. And I, I found that rejection letter not too long ago, and I cringed when I read it because it started like this. Even after reading the 23-page synopsis, <laughs> we are still not sure what this novel is about. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, your characters are two-dimensional, your plot lacks tension, all this stuff. Um, but at the end of this this letter, which was actually very thoughtful. You know, you don't get letters like this today. Yeah. 
um, it said, but it is strangely reminiscent of Clan of the Cave Bear, which was one of my favorite novels growing up. And so all I took away from that rejection letter was that my book was like Clan of the Cave Bear. <laughs> <laughs> so I should probably, you know, do this again. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's great. <laughs> now, actually, um, when you write your stories, do you tend to start with a theme or a question or, I don't know, a message that you're trying to get across. It sounds to me like you like asking, um, you know, these questions, of what would it be like to be this character or to be in this type of, mm-hmm. of world? Where, where did the stories mm-hmm. kind of have their genesis? Yeah, so it's, it's really just kind of a very simple premise. You know, what about the story of a fallen angel? What would it be like to tell the story of Eve through her point of view? or the story of Judas, or the Queen of Sheba through their point of view. Um, with the thrillers, it's, you know, with the progeny, I wanted to tell, I wanted to write a thriller, and I wanted to give these characters not supernatural abilities per se, but just a little extra something, and they, they all have some gifts, basically. And in the line between um, that particular one, I, I had two uh premises. Uh, one was the, uh, I had seen a headline about um, a reindeer carcass that thawed in the melting Siberian permafrost and it happened to be filled with anthrax and it made a local village sick. And I thought this was terrifying and fascinating. And I had taken that idea to a meeting with my publisher along with several other favorite ideas, one of which was a young woman starting over in the outside world after leaving a doomsday cult that she grew up in. And it was my publisher who said, I like these two ideas. Why don't you combine them? And I thought he was on something at first. I was like, what? <laughs> but, and then I was like, you know, maybe this could work out. And, and so that's how that one happened and became the story of a, a you know, cult escapee starting over in a world right as a pandemic is, is sweeping across the nation. So, um, But it's usually a really simple premise, just kind of a, a one sentence or a small phrase of an idea. Um, I yeah. always have a hard time doing that with my stories. People say, what's your story about? And I'm like, okay. Uh, and then uh, 20 minutes later, they're like, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> That's enough. Right. Like, I'm yeah. like, oh, they man, want how do you do pitch. that? And it is so yeah. hard to make those like little log line elevator pitch things. It's, that's hard, really hard. It's interesting when you mention the doomsday cult and the cult and so on. I actually have been toying with this idea of doing something with, with a story with a cult. Uh, and, um, I've been fascinated by cults. In fact, mm-hmm. last night I was doing uh, research um, online, and I, w- I was like, how do I join a cult? What is the best <laughs> cult to join? <laughs> I hope my wife doesn't, like, find my research history. Like, what, in, what on or earth are you? Or the FBI. <laughs> or the FBI, I know, right? <laughs> but um, just this idea of, you know, kind of brainstorming or getting people um, to follow after uh, a, some, sort of, some sort of charismatic, you know, um, mm-hmm. Leader is is interesting to me. Um, basically, my very first novel dealt with um, one of the survivors from the Jonestown massacre back in the seventies, mm. and um, and so I was able to interview one of the people who was the lieutenant for Jim Jones when I was researching wow. that novel, and so. Um, he told me what it was like to be there that day when people were lining up to 
basically commit mass suicide, mass murder, and, you know, two hours later, 914 people were dead. And, you know, what was it like to be in this place where you thought this was the best thing that could ever happen? And then it turns mm-hmm. out is one of the worst things that could ever happen in the history of, you know, I don't know about the history of the world, but but certainly it, it, one of the most tragic and horrifying events that that's happened in mm-hmm. you know the 20th century, and so um, so it's just that whole uh, that whole aspect of what is that what is that like? Did you find a- anything when you were researching you know that book as far as cults or brainwashing anything mm-hmm. like that that were that, yeah. I don't know that were insights or interesting. Well, it seems like um, cults, you know, successful cults, if we can call a cult successful, I guess, um, a lot of them share a lot of um, characteristics. You know, they, the way that they bring people in, you know, they're bringing people in who are searching for something. And really that describes almost everybody at some point in their lives. Yeah. Um, they bring people in who are a little lost or who are searching or who want to be accepted for who they are, and that is really all of us. And the way they do that is a technique that has been called love bombing. So they're just loving on people and making them feel loved and accepted and giving them a new group of friends and bringing them in and, you know, just making them enthusiastic and feel like they're living their best life. And, you know, things change very slowly. It's kind of like boiling the frog, you know, as Mm. they start cutting them off from their, their families and communities and, you know, if they don't subscribe to the same kind of, if their family members or friends don't subscribe to the same thoughts or philosophies, then they start kind of ostracizing them more and more. And, you know, things become more stringent and, you know, there's almost always, I mean, there has to be basically a a very charismatic cult leader. They are so often men. Um, So there's, there's really interesting characteristics that, that, um, you know, you can almost see it happen with, with pretty much every cult. I've, I've started watching um, this new HBO series called The Vow about the Nexium cult, which mm. just recently happened. Um, the, yeah, it, was, it involved a lot of Hollywood people, and uh, the first episode just came out fascinating. And the scary thing is, the way that they filmed this first episode, they have the cult leader, and I think his name was Keith Raniere, and he's talking about what Nexium offers and all this stuff. And you're listening to the first few minutes of this episode, which you know is about a cult. And you're like, this sounds pretty good. You know, yeah. like, where do I plop down my $5,000 to sign up for these classes and become part of this organization? Because it doesn't sound bad. Yeah. Right? So. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, it just made me think of something. When a, when we write thrillers or, you know, a fantasy or whatever brand or genre you might you might talk about, the, the bad guy never sees himself as the bad guy. Like the villain doesn't see himself as the villain, and as soon as he does, he becomes less frightening. But he always sees himself as, like, the hero of the story. Right, um, yeah. And as soon as he's like, watch out for my evil plan that I'm about to put into, <laughs> you know, practice, then we're like, okay, this is kind of a caricature. Yeah. But, but as long as he's sort of, you know, reasonable and, and stuff, you're like, huh, this is interesting, mm-hmm. interesting. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, this is the villain of this story. <laughs> or this is a right. demon or whatever, you know. Yeah, I always, you know, 
when my when I teach about writing and I, I know that you teach tons in so many places and and I, I don't teach quite as much as you do, but I do teach about characterization. Um, and one of the things I always love to talk about is the fact that a really good villain is someone who's so multifaceted that, you know, they see themselves as completely sympathetic. And, you know, the more that we can often give villains sympathetic qualities, the more, um, the more complex our, our stories actually become. And I, I think that's true. I remember one. That's a good point. At, yeah, it's, I, you know, because we're all very multifaceted. And I think it was after um, my book about the legend, the, the legend of Sheba, my story about the Queen of Sheba came out, and I was talking about her journey up to meet King Solomon. And my oldest son said, now, King Solomon, was he a good guy or a bad guy? And I said, well, he's both. <laughs> you know, he's both, just like all of us. We are all the good guy and the bad guy at different times, depending. And we're all at conflict um, with ourselves often. And, you know, we are the sympathetic character in our own stories, and yet, you know, we're all very multifaceted and multidimensional. Yeah, I like that. I remember I was teaching a class one time. You mentioned teaching, and I know you've done it all over the country at different events, conferences, Mm -hmm. and so on. And uh, someone asked me something about, like, character or whatever, and I just said something that day that I was like, I want to remember that because that actually makes sense to me. But and that is that people don't want to, readers don't want to read about a nice character doing nice things. They want to read about a conflicted character doing difficult things. And mm-hmm. like when you just said that about being conflicted, I think that part of that is that draws us into the stories with the tension. Uh, the tension doesn't need to be necessarily someone's life is in danger, but it could be moral tension. And all of those mm-hmm. you know, conflicted views and... And stuff. I think that's uh, that's one of the reasons that we get attracted to these to these types of stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now you collaborated with uh, Ted Decker on a couple of uh, mm-hmm. books back in the day, and I was just mm-hmm. curious, not so much about working with Ted, but just about the idea of collaborating with another author. Uh, now I know mm-hmm. Ted; he's a great uh, writer as well. He's a great storyteller and um but what was it like to try and work with you know someone maybe who had who knows a, a little bit different vision for a scene or, or for a story thread or something like that how did you guys mm-hmm. how did you guys pull that off well i'm not going to lie you know the the first year or so we did three books together and the first year there it was difficult to kind of find our stride and uh-huh. find our system and I, I think anytime you collaborate with somebody, um, you know, a few things have to happen. One, you have to know the strengths that each of you are bringing to the table hmm. so that you know how you're complementing one another. And we were very different writers, especially at that time. I had just come off of writing and uh, publishing Hava, which was that very lyrical-sounding, you know, narrative. Mm-hmm. He had just come off of some serial killer thrillers. <laughs> so our voices couldn't have been more different. So trying to find a common voice and create that took many um, passes through the book and layers. Um, I likened it to trying to create um, a beautiful lacquer where you have to do layer and layer and layer of lacquer to get that nice shine, that beautiful Mm. sheen. So the first book was very time intensive. The second one was faster and the third we wrote in like two months. Wow. And it takes time, I think, to create trust too, to the point where you can say, you, you know, where you know your collaborator well enough to say, I don't want to write this part or you'll write this part better. 
I'm going to leave this part blank and you go fill this part in or do that part or whatever. So I think trust comes into it too. Um, I'm actually in the middle of a collaboration right now on a uh, World War II story, which is a very different kind of story for me, Yeah, kind of a a historical story that I think is an important one. Uh, It takes place in the South Pacific, which is uh, a part of the war theater that we sometimes don't hear as much about. Yeah. And this has been a completely different process, and that's why... You know, whenever I get uh, questions from people saying, how does that work? How do you collaborate? You know, I've known a lot of people who have collaborated with other authors. You know, all I know of many writing partnerships with many of my friends. And as far as I can tell, nobody does it the same. Hmm. Everybody's yeah. finding their own process. And I think that's so important. And, and I think that's also why it's so important if you want to enter into something like that for those who are listening, if you're considering it, it's really important to know yourself, how, how you work best, and to know yourself as a writer, how you write best, and what your strengths are. Um, those are so important. I feel like um, when I first read one of your books, and then I first read one of Ted's books, that you guys did have, at the time, sort of different strengths. Like, I, I would think of yours was wordsmithing, is the word that mm-hmm. comes to mind. And his was mm-hmm. like, I got not necessarily structure, but just like the idea of storytelling or something like that. So Plotting, yeah. yeah. Yeah, plotting and so on, so like that. So I felt like when you guys came together, it was a good marriage, uh, not marriage, marriage, but a good mm-hmm. marriage of skills, skill sets to mm-hmm. be able to develop. And probably, hopefully, you both grew in different directions. You know, as as a result of, you know, working together. Um, but I think now, so. oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was I was going to say I I think I think we really did, and I I know for sure that I at least really learned um, a lot from that. And one of the things I learned was to quit overwriting the way I had with hmm. Iscariot, for instance. Yeah. And the funny thing is, after that collaboration, I started writing thrillers, and he started writing biblical fiction. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, that is interesting. How about that? Um, yeah. yeah. So, tell us about your latest thriller, the new one that just comes out this fall. I feel like it's mm-hmm. going to be one that um, will really um, appeal to a lot of our listeners. So, without giving too much away, tell us the elevator pitch or whatever it is that you want to share about, <laughs> you know, um, well, Single um, Light. Yeah, Single Light is the sequel to The Line Between. So, The Line Between is the story of Winter Roth, and she's 22 years old at the start of um, at the, the first book, and she's just been ousted from this doomsday cult that she spent the last 15 years of her life in. She basically grew up in it. And she's now been kicked out, and she's having to start over in an outside world that she's been taught to regard as evil. And at this time, this pandemic is sweeping across the nation, and so for her, it looks a lot like the apocalypse that she's always been taught to regard, you know, taught was coming. And so she becomes more involved with um, the workings of that when a set of medical samples falls under her possession through a series of events in the first book, and she has to help get them to a lab in Colorado. So, um, through that process, um, she's in the beginning of the second book, she's, uh, and this is not a spoiler (laughs) because it's in the description, but at the beginning of the second book, she's in an underground silo, 
um, taking refuge with, with 60 other people and trying to wait out the pandemic until there's a vaccine, which is where we all are now, basically waiting for a vaccine. Um, but it's, it, it takes up with life in this underground community um, and what that's like and the tensions there. And then when, when those six months have passed and they finally reemerge, um, they find that life is very different than what they expected it would be. And so that's the story of a single light. That's fascinating. And when you started <laughs> writing the first book, did you have in mind the arc of where things would go? Or are you more organic in the sense of, okay, well, that was really interesting. I wrote myself into a corner. Now what am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because um, actually when I get asked the question about plotting these books, uh, there's a couple things. I've done two duologies now, and both times I've written the first book not knowing how I would get myself out of the ending of the first one and onto the second one, because I do write myself into this corner and a smart person would probably have an idea of what they're doing in the second book, but I did not both times. So both times with the second book, it was like, okay, time to write the next installment. Hmm. What happens now? But I I will also tell you when I was writing the line between um, this was one of those instances of, you know, where I always tell people, you got to know how you write best. You got to know how you write best. Because I went into that book thinking, you know, I've, I've, this was my 10th novel or ninth, I don't know, for publication. And I thought, you know, I, I know the structure well enough. I know kind of what needs to happen where as far as turning points. I don't really need to, you know, spend time kind of thinking through this too much. So I went into it and I kind of really, I really kind of wrote myself into some, some situations that were not working out. And I talk about this in interviews a lot because I, I people ask me the question, you know, about being a pantser or an outliner. And I always say, I know some very successful pantsers. And I always mention your name, Stephen. I always say, <laughs> you know, my friend Stephen is a, a, a famous pantser. And I think when I started the line between, I thought, um, I'm going to be Stephen James. So and, <laughs> I, and what I learned is, and I, I've mentioned this, and I don't know how many podcasts, but what I learned is I'm not Stephen James, because <laughs> I was like, this didn't work for me. And, you know, for me, I just learned I have to have a little more of, of a roadmap of where I'm going. So um, I haven't achieved Stephen James status yet. Oh, my goodness. So. That's funny. So, um, yeah, for people who are listening and are like, what is pantsing even? Like, that's yeah, whenever yeah. someone oh, yeah. says, you know, like writing by the seat of your pants so without an outline or plot structure and so on like that. And and um, But I do like what you mentioned a second ago, and that is like writing yourself into a corner at the end of the book where you're like, I'm not sure where this is going to completely go with this next book. I feel like... When you're in that place, readers will be in that place as well. And sometimes building up big promises for the next book can be a way of really helping people anticipate. I wonder where they're going to go, you know, with the yeah, story. Yeah, it's, it's exciting, and, but you're really, like, writing checks that your body better be able to cash because you, <laughs> you have to deliver, you know, on that. So, and it's always, I think I kind of like the pressure of that situation because when that happens, usually my first book is either out or coming out and I've got to figure out now how to deliver on those goods because it's set in stone and I've got to go from where I left off. I, there's no changing it now. 
there's this book that I'm working on right now, and at the end, the one of the bad guys gets away. This lady gets away, right? Anyway, and so mm-hmm. she um, says to one of the main characters, she says, um, you have no idea what's coming next. Um, this Ooh. was just the beginning. And so I'm oh, like, cool. that is such a huge promise. Like, I have no idea what happens next. Like, you know, in the next book, I'm like, what on earth? What could possibly be? What did I do? What did I do? So, so as I've been editing and going through, I'm like, do I keep that line? Or do yes, I, you, have you know? To. No, you've got to keep it. You've got to keep it. Because now, now, yeah. Oh, I, I think that's great, though. I think that putting the pressure on where you're like, okay, now I have to be even more audacious than before. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Now, what what would you say um, is something that you've picked up over the years writing, you know, for the last 10 or 20 years, however many you've been working on your novel? <laughs> it's been a while. Where, yeah. Where you've learned something that no one ever taught you. In other words, maybe a word of advice for people who might be writing. And, you know, there's typical advice out there, but is there anything you've picked up through, you know, going through the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts day-by-day writing that you wish maybe you would have been told once you got started? Mm. Yeah, a couple things. Uh, One thing during my kind of evolution from my early books to now is at some point your language needs to... It's, I love beautiful language, and I love wordsmithing, you know, which is something I was known for more. Um, I do think at some point it's time to kind of set that aside, and your language needs to become transparent hmm. so that your readers are not noticing it, because when you're noticing the language, then you're not as, as immersed in the story. So I want the... Because, you know, your language, you know, it's like the vehicle at Disneyland that takes you around the haunted house. And at some point, you want to you want to no longer be aware that you're sitting in one of those mechanical things that are taking you through it, right? So I like that. Yeah. You want um, some really transparent language. I think, too, that there's a lot of different kind of writing systems and processes and things that people try to teach. And I, I feel like at some point, you, you have to do enough introspective work to know how you work best and you have to find a way to align your your writing process with that. And what I mean by that are things like, do you need a checklist because you like to work with checklists? Do you need a critique group because you are social and you're an extrovert and you need to have that contact or, you know, whatever it is, do you, are you good at starting things, but terrible at finishing? So do you need a coach to come alongside you or someone to help you, you know, push on to the end I think that self-awareness is absolutely huge. Um, but the other thing, you know, my number one rule of writing, and it's something I go back to over and over and I talk about a lot, um, that no one really told me. Um, but my number one rule of writing is write like no one will ever read this. And it seems really counterintuitive when you're writing for a publication, right? Or you may have a contract and you know people are going to read it and you've got reviewers waiting for it. And you may have a... Um, movie option team waiting for it even or things like that. The reason I say that is because it takes the pressure off. And if you can fool yourself into writing like no one will ever read this, or if you're not published yet and you can capitalize on that fact that you're still unknown and you're still in that protected state, it frees you up to write authentically and audaciously without worry about who's going to you know, think what about it. And that's when you do your best stuff. That's a really interesting advice, and I like that. 
I know there have been projects where I've been working on it and thinking to myself, what are the uh, reviewers going to say, or what will readers yeah. think of this? And so it is interesting to step back and and approach it from that, you know, different perspective yeah. too. To write, I don't I like have to how pretend you said like I'm in a closet with a flashlight sometimes, you know, writing <laughs> secret stuff. Otherwise, it really can kind of freeze you up a little bit, and it's it gets harder to slog through it when you're that conscious of it. At least for me. So. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I was thinking of um, when you mentioned that one of the writers' conferences that we were at probably nine or ten years ago. You you were doing a writing exercise, and you said. Um, I want you to think of the most sublime um, experience of your life. And I, mm. oh, I, I remembered that from all of these years <laughs> later. I was like, that is wow. such an interesting question to ask people. Um, mm. And, you know, it'll mean different things to different people, and that's okay. Um, mm. But it'll, it'll really help people, I think, to come... In, to these moments that matter, the moments that really will resonate with, uh, you know, readers. Yeah, I'm, I really love kind of mining our own experiences, not just, you know, experiences mentally that we've experienced, you know, like betrayal or moments of bliss or whatever it is, but, but also the feelings that those experiences brought out in us. What did it feel like? I'm more interested in what it felt like. Because when we can mine those things and then apply them to our writing, even if the character is going through a slightly different situation, but if we can apply how it felt, then really you're not having to manufacture that feeling in your, your readers. You're only pulling out um, similar feelings in them and reminding them of those feelings. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're all the same, you know, and we read and we write to know we're not alone. And and that's why I think it's so important to mine those experiences and the feelings because you're you're plucking at those strings in your readers, and and letting them resonate with them. That that actually connects with something that someone told me when I first started writing back in the mid '90s, and um, he said that it specifically leads to the universal. And I didn't yeah. understand it at first, but like, let's say that your theme is regret. Well, that's too broad. Like no one will really Mm -hmm. connect with this regret as sort of this broad theme or whatever. But if you're so specific to say, okay, she regrets what she said to her sister at her dad's funeral or whatever, or, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. she regrets that one night that she betrayed her husband or whatever the regret ends Mm -hmm. up being, the more specific you come at it, the more readers will identify with it, which seems backwards. Yeah. You'd think, well, even if I never said anything, you know, at my dad's funeral, or I didn't have this night of betrayal or whatever, um, they'll think of something in their life, oh, I know what that feels like. So isn't that interesting yeah. that it's like, that's, that's super, yeah. you know, specificity. I, I've, I've heard that too, and I, I think it's really true, and it seems counterintuitive because that person, your reader, may not have had that experience, but somehow mm-hmm. that kind of level of detail, it brings up something that we really can identify with, even if it's not that specific thing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So I'm, a couple of the things I'm going to take away from our conversation today was authenticity and audacious writing. I like <laughs> those very much. That's what I want my story to be like. Um, me too. <laughs> <laughs> what 
when you said audacious, um, I thought of my goal with my current book is to write something that is um, clamoring to be heard. So mm. it's like, what is it about this story that's desperate to be told? And then I want to tap mm. into that idea. So I'm going to remember being more audacious and, and not letting the pressure of readers or reviewers, you know, impinge on, on the story. So, yeah, it's I think been, it's hard to yeah. remember sometimes that, you know, we, we try so hard to be polite or we try so hard to, you know, whatever. And it's, you know, there's having those moments of being audacious. I think that's, that's where it's at. Audacious <laughs> that's what and I sublime. Try to, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. As I said that, my phone thought that I was talking to it. I said audacious and sublime, and my iPhone thought I was talking to it, and it said, I don't understand. What do you want me to do with that? I've never had that happen before. (laughs) That was pretty funny. That's funny. (laughs) So, um, all right. Well, uh, thanks so much, Tosca, for being on the show today, and we really want our listeners to check out A Single Light. Um, Would you say they should pick up that one, or should they pick up the line between to read it first? You know, I, you can start with Single Light. Some people do. But if you want the whole story from the beginning, then I'd say definitely start with the line between. Okay, so that's perfect, and that's a good time to get it right now. So you can read it as mm-hmm. a Single Light re- releases in just a couple of weeks. So that would be perfect timing. Um, where's perfect. the best place for people to connect with you online or if they want to maybe see when you might be teaching or speaking somewhere or um, just connect with you through social media, what what would you suggest is the best place? Sure. Well, you can always go to my website, which is toscalee.com, and it's spelled T-O-S-C-A-L-E-E.com, and I do have a calendar feature there. Um, I also, on my menu, I have a feature called code there because I hit a code in the line between. So if you think you you found it while you're reading, you can go there and see if you're right. So there's a little Easter egg in there as well. Um, but I do have a calendar there, and you can see what my upcoming events are, which are not as many as usual due to the current pandemic situation. Yeah. But there are a few. So, yep. And all the social media buttons are on that website as well. Perfect. So, everyone, check out Tuscalee.com and check out her newest book coming up, A Single Light. Everybody, thanks for listening uh, to the show today. For more information about our other guests and to check out other broadcasts and podcasts, click to thestoryblender.com or go to iTunes or Spotify and just look for The Story Blender. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Friday evenings. And always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time. (laughs)